I'm turning today to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1 and verse 39. And he preached in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and cast out devils. And there came a leper to him, beseeching him and kneeling down to him and saying unto him, If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And our subject is model conversions. And we have two in the verses and stretching into chapter 2 before us this morning. We've considered the opening of Mark's gospel and the healing of Simon Peter's mother-in-law. Interestingly, uh, she was bedridden and sick and unable to call upon him, it appears. And others, the new disciples, called upon Christ on her behalf. And he came and he healed her. But immediately we come to this incident in verse 40 of a leper, the first in the New Testament recorded healing of a leper by Christ. And in this case, it was the leper who came of his own will to seek healing and help. So there is the one person healed first who represents the helplessness of the seeker, who represents the dead state of the soul. We do not seek him. We do not desire him. Others intercede on our behalf to the Lord, and the Lord takes the initiative. But immediately, Mark switches to the case of the leper who shows the seeking aspect of the enlightened sinner or seeker. There came a leper to him, beseeching him. And we're at pains at the moment to show that these compassionate healing miracles are far more than a demonstration of the power and divinity of Christ. They are that, of course. They demonstrate to all there that he is God and that he has divine power and he can heal at a word or a touch instantly and all kinds of illnesses can be healed, even the dead can be raised and sight restored to the blind and before the eyes of all onlookers, withered limbs can fill out and become whole and normal instantly. And this is a case in point. A leper comes to him. But these are more than demonstrations of Christ's divinity. They're also demonstrations or illustrations of how he blesses the needy and the lost soul. We set about looking at just a few of many texts we could consider last study that shows and proves this, that they were intentionally designed, these healings, also to picture, to illustrate spiritual healing, conversion, the new birth. And just very briefly, because I want to move to chapter 2, we consider it in the healing of the leper. And this is how they should be preached. 
This is the purpose of them. There came a leper to him, beseeching him and kneeling down to him. Other gospels go further. They say not only did he kneel, but he prostrated himself before the Lord in utter humility, saying unto him, oh, this is so interesting, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. You look at the words carefully. This leper didn't say, if you can, if thou wilt, if you will. He was quite certain that Christ could heal him. He knew of all the other miracles, perhaps had observed them from a distance in some cases. So his words are, if you will. What it implies is this, can a creature like me be healed and saved? You see, in those days, it was the most common belief that all sickness or affliction or handicap was the result of some personal sin. Well, that is not the teaching of the Word of God. That was not a correct assumption, but that's what they thought. And so if somebody was a leper, he may well think, this is because of my sin. Whatever the handicap, it wasn't correct for them to conclude it was necessarily the immediate result of their personal sin. Of course, all sickness is the result of sin, but in general terms, it's part of the curse upon mankind, the punishment for the fall of man away from God, the fall of mankind as a whole, brought in sickness and death. But this leper would have been particularly conscience-smitten and assuming, well, I'm in this state because of my sin. Can I be forgiven? Am I discarded forever? I'm an outcast from the temple. I, am I an outcast from God forever? So his question is, Lord, I insert that, if you will, if it is your will, if you heal creatures like me, not if you can. So he had faith, you see. His only doubt as to whether Christ would help him, not whether he could or could not help. If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And he uses loaded language. Not well, but clean. Of course, that would apply to his leprosy, but you can see that his sin is uppermost in his mind, his need of forgiveness. And in verse 41, Jesus moved with compassion, put forth his hand and touched him and saith unto him, and see how Christ echoes the very words of the leper, I will. Be thou clean. The prayer is, if you will, can I be healed? I will. Be healed, be clean. And as soon as he had spoken, it was clearly due to his word. Immediately the leprosy departed from him. 
and he was cleansed. Now you notice that Christ touched him, but only when he spoke was the leper healed. It was an executive word, an authoritative word. Be thou clean. And that accomplished the miracle. What about the touch? Did that accomplish anything? No. It waited for the word. The touch was Christ's identification with the leper. To touch a leper couldn't be done. Leprosy was thought to be, and possibly was, the form of leprosy. Biblical leprosy, we're assured, is rather different in many ways from modern leprosy. Many characteristics the same, many different. In biblical times, it appears to have been contagious. And you didn't touch a leper, but Christ touched him against all the taboos and restrictions. And it was his identification of him that he calls him son, a particular way. So the salvation, the forgiveness of Christ is part of a package where Christ adopts and owns and identifies with a person and makes that person his own and a relationship is formed and we become sons or daughters of the living God and we have communion with him and know him. It's all expressed in the identifying, connecting touch. But then the word heals. It illustrates salvation in so many ways. But just look at verse 42. Well, the leprosy departed, he was cleansed, and he was immediately called upon to go and to present himself to the priests in the temple that would have been all the way to Jerusalem in order that it could be established that he was now whole and healed. But the man gets overexcited and he cannot help it and we can scarcely blame him. What the Lord says to him seems to go in one ear and out of the other. He's so thrilled and so pleased naturally and he spreads it abroad and great crowds form further. But I just wanted to touch on the leper because leprosy, we can preach about the healing of the leper and apply it to salvation. The plight of the leper cut off from his home. He had to live in a hut or a shack outside the city boundaries. He had to cry unclean if anyone approached him. Cut off from society. What a picture of being cut off from God before we converted outside the kingdom, alienated from him. Then the leper suffered so many things and he suffered the loss of feeling in limbs, paralysis of limbs and the falling off of fingers and toes and the loss of hair and teeth and scarrings and unsightliness and the scaliness of the sin odious to look upon. What a picture 
of our spiritual state before God. Beautiful, perhaps, handsome in this world, ugly before God because of sin and disobedience and no thankfulness and no praise and nothing for God, no homage to him, full of sin and selfishness, unforgiven, uncleansed, lepers in the sight of God. And then the change, the transformation, to think all that was gone and he was whole and cleansed and healed. And so it is when we come to Christ and we are forgiven. Forgiveness is the great thing, but then he proceeds to change our lives and make us different and fill our minds with understanding and give us love in our hearts and relate us to himself. Why every healing can be preached graphically as a picture of salvation. But let's come to this second chapter. And again, he entered into Capernaum, that coastal village on the north coast of the Sea of Tiberias, population about 2,000. Imagine it. Everybody knew everyone. He entered into Capernaum after some days and it was noised that he was in the house. Possibly Simon Peter's house again. And straightway many were gathered together insomuch that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door. A great crowd outside. You couldn't get near the place. And he preached the word unto them. He expounded the scriptures. And always the theme that he would lead up to, because Mark tells us that a few verses earlier, are the twin themes of repentance and remission of sin. And verse 3, they come unto him. Who? Well, four men bearing a fifth. They come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, a paralyzed man. How long had he been paralyzed? No idea. But now he's paralyzed. The other Gospels make it clear that he was in a very bad way, completely paralyzed. And he was born of four. Perhaps he was a big fellow paralyzed. He took four of them, corners of a kind of pallias or couch to carry him about. And they bore him to the house, but they couldn't get anywhere near the door. So they went to the rear of the house, where there was the outside staircase that led up to the roof. And they ascended that. Verse 4, when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. Tiles are mentioned elsewhere. It was a flat roof. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. Says Luke, very precisely, they lowered it down immediately in front of Christ. That was what mattered, to get this 
paralyzed man into the presence of Christ. And in verse 5 we read, when Jesus saw their faith. What an unexpected line to read. When Jesus saw their faith. They hadn't said anything yet. But he read their hearts. And what he saw was faith. Faith to be healed? Yes. But as the narrative goes on, you see it was more than faith to be healed. When Jesus saw their faith, he sees the heart. Have we approached Christ? Have you ever prayed to God for forgiveness? Have you ever prayed to God for help? In anything? Maybe it was only a selfish prayer. Something you wanted so badly. And you weren't sure you could get it. Had you even resorted to prayer? Perhaps it was anxious prayer. In a sudden illness. Something serious. Something that might be extremely serious. And you weren't yet told. And you prayed out of anxiety. But have you ever prayed for the thing that matters most? The chief thing, the first thing, the thing that if you do not pray for first, you cannot pray for anything else. The forgiveness of sin, the chief and the first thing that must be dealt with by God. If you don't want that, and you don't feel the need for that, and you don't ask for that, don't be surprised if God doesn't hear you for anything else. Because that's first. The forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with God. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, not arise, take up thy bed and walk. But the first thing was, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. That's always the first thing with God. And that was obviously the first thing that this man wanted. He was paralyzed. But he probably was influenced by even the wrong teaching of that day, that his paralysis was due to his personal sin. So the need for forgiveness had become uppermost in his mind. And when Jesus saw their faith, he saw that this man believed he was the Messiah who could forgive sin. And he didn't wait for him to ask outwardly. He said, son, he owned him again. Thy sins be forgiven thee. And notice, although the man hadn't asked, he is forgiven not just one sin. That was the belief of the time. I am paralyzed because of some sin that I committed. But Christ says, your sins, in the plural, be forgiven. And that gives me the opportunity to say, Never repent only of one sin. 
It sometimes happens. Somebody may be very ashamed. There's been an awful row. Husband, wife, something terrible. Loss of temper to an extreme degree, perhaps. And then one or the other feels ashamed. How could I lose self-control in that way? How could I behave so disgracefully? How could I say such cruel and terrible things? And maybe that person murmurs a prayer. God forgive me that outburst of temper. Yes, that's important. But what about the other sins? If you want reconciliation with God, don't mention one sin only. One thing, say, Lord, I come as a total sinner. I can see that all my pride and selfishness and deceit and uncleanness and everything I've ever done or thought is an offence to thee. I have no hope, deserve nothing but condemnation. Pardon and forgive me for all my sins, because Christ's concern is the forgiveness not of sin, but of sins. And don't forget as you come, he reads the heart. He knows if you mean it. And if you do, he saw their faith. And he said, son, your sins are all forgiven. So it's a picture for us of the approach to God and of salvation. And it's so precious and so valuable to us. But I come to verse 6. There were problems. There were certain of the scribes sitting there in that house. They'd got in first. They were probably from Jerusalem. There were also Pharisees, Luke tells us. Scribes and Pharisees. And their reasoning in their hearts, they don't say this outwardly, but they're thinking, why doth this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? Well, they're half right. Only God can forgive sins. But why don't they believe that Christ is God? They should have done. They'd been out to hear the preaching earlier of John the Baptist. What a phenomenon he was. And everybody heard him. And people were so moved at his preaching. He announced, Messiah is at hand. Messiah is coming. There's going to be a season of great change. And we need to repent and yield ourselves to God. That was his kind of preaching. And he did it so effectively and movingly. He worked no miracles. But his preaching was compelling. And thousands of people from every location, from Galilee, from Judea, they came from far and wide, and they repented and were baptized by John. He had a baptism that he gave, a washing, to signify that you wanted change and you wanted to repent. 
It was quite a phenomenon. And the scribes and the Pharisees had heard this, the great announcement that Messiah was here. John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, he was predicted in prophecy. Christ was predicted in prophecy. And so Christ comes. Why didn't they believe in him? Why did they say, this man, this man is a blasphemer. He's making himself out to be God. He's forgiving sins. That's saying he is God. It is outrageous. They'd seen miracles. They were just seeing another one. Didn't they convince the scribes and the Pharisees? They had the front seat so often. Yet they were hard and wouldn't accept the divinity of Christ. They had been present, because that's where they came from, in Jerusalem in the early chapters of John's Gospel, when for the first time, he did this twice, at the beginning of his ministry, Christ cleared the temple. It was full of money changers. All the crookedness and hypocrisy of the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, changing money at inflated rates, on the make, everybody knew they were doing it. But people had to exchange their ordinary currency for religious money to make the acceptable tithes. And then they were selling the animals for slaughter. Inadequate animals sold at exorbitant prices. These people were hypocrites. They were on the make. And Christ had cast them all out of the temple. At a word, carrying in his hand just a, a little token scourge, a symbol. Yet his word, somehow, he just emanated that power and they went silently out of the temple. They'd seen these astonishing things, but they wouldn't accept him as Messiah. They'd heard his teaching. They'd seen his outstanding benevolent character. He never took money. He walked as a poor man, and yet they poured out of him benevolent, compassionate miracles. He fulfilled all the prophecies, but they wouldn't have him. Why? They felt threatened by him. They knew he was exposing their hypocrisy and their sin. They felt that he was a danger to them. They would be dispossessed from their high offices and their luxury lives. And they hated him and they plotted to kill him. Why doth this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit, he knew their thoughts that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? And listen to this. Which is easier? Whether it is, is it easier to say, which is easier? To say to the sick of the palsy, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, arise, take up thy bed and walk. And verse 10, this is magnificent. 
but that ye may know, but that it may be proved to you that the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, used that title of himself nearly 80 times in the New Testament. No one else uses it but he himself. It comes from the book of the prophet Daniel. And the Jews and the Jewish leaders all knew what it meant. That it meant Messiah. It was Daniel's prophecy of Messiah. But that you may know that the Son of Man, they knew he meant Messiah, hath power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, I say unto thee, arise and take up thy bed and go thy way into thine house. And immediately the paralysis went and his limbs worked and in his own strength he got to his feet and he picked up that pallias, that flimsy couch and went forth before them all. First forgiveness. This is conversion. First forgiveness, second new life. First forgiveness, second new life. They happen together, but first is forgiveness. And on the heels of that comes the new life. You're given by God a new nature, a new heart. Love is put within you for God. A new conscience. You hate your sin now more than you ever love it. And you live for him. And you have a sense of union with God. And he blesses you with new life. Insomuch that they were all amazed even the scribes and the Pharisees. And they glorified God. And they said, we never saw anything like this. We never saw it on this fashion. We have never seen, we have to acknowledge, anything like this. The healing of a paralyzed man in such a dramatic and total way, accompanied by the forgiveness of all his sin, because that's what it pictured. In Luke's Gospel, we read, we have seen strange things today. And that term, strange things, translates the Greek paradoxes, as we would say it. We have seen paradoxes today. So the crowd said two things. We've never seen anything like this. And we have seen paradoxes today. We have seen things against all expectation. We have seen things which were totally surprising to us. They were not what we would expect they were paradoxical, opposed to what we would normally expect to see. That's their sense, their meaning. And the Christian gospel is like that. 
Have you never understood the gospel of Christ? It's paradoxical. It is the opposite of what you expect. Why, the Bible says, this is a doomed world. It will end in judgment. It will finally, at the end, get worse. In spite of all the wonders given by God's hand for man to discover and all the technology he can explore and utilize and apply and all the gadgets and all the things that advance life and comfort, morally, at the end of time, things will get worse and worse and there'll be a great apostasy and God will be denied and spurned and scorned Are we not living in that time now, gathering speed all the while? This is a doomed world, says the Bible. Oh, you say, I thought Christianity was supposed to make the world a better place. Surprise number one. No, says the Bible. It's a world under judgment. And God is at work saving out of the world and bringing to a personal knowledge of himself individual men and women and children and youngsters everywhere. That's the message of Christ. And if you never come to him, you're in a world that is doomed and you're living for it and serving it. We have seen things opposite to all our expectations said the crowd, well, our time is up. Forgiveness is the chief thing. Here's a big surprise in the Christian gospel. It is a forgiveness and new life which is given as a free gift by grace from God. Oh, I thought you had to earn it. I thought you had to be a better person. I thought you had to deserve it. That's not in the Bible anywhere. We cannot, says the scripture. We cannot earn it. We are corrupt and depraved. We're capable of good, but even the goodness is ruined by the bad. And we need forgiveness and free salvation. And Christ has to earn it and deserve it for us. He has to come and suffer and die on our behalf. The surprises of the Christian faith, the opposite of what we tend to think in our human pride. Well, Capernaum was a small town. They knew, all of them, the inhabitants of Capernaum, they knew the paralytic man. Perhaps he was laid out to beg somewhere, in some prominent place. And they passed him daily. They knew him, and now they saw him whole. What effect did it have on them? Well, say the different Gospels, they were amazed. Says Luke's Gospel, they were filled with fear, awe, at this amazing healing, accompanied by forgiveness. They were astonished. For a while, 
they were moved and affected. That can happen to us. We can go through a phase or have an event in life that moves us deeply and gives us deep need. And we pray and we explore for a time the faith and we feel just something of the eternity of God and our need of him. And we are even moved. And then like the people of Capernaum, we leave it all behind. The people of Capernaum, or most of them, never repented. And Christ said to them, I was mentioning this last study, it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for Sodom than for you. They saw, they even felt, and they rejected. Dear friends, don't do that. Don't reject the Lord. The miracles, even the miracles, teach the grace of God. The transforming power of God that we need. And first of all, his forgiveness. Never forget these things, dear friends.